0: podcast, On Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. As always, you can find us on Twitter at On Becoming Pod and Instagram at On Becoming Podcast. In the past, I've asked for comments or questions or suggestions for what you'd like to hear on the podcast. If you're enjoying this series in which we've been asking if evangelicalism is a cult, do let me know. If you don't like it, also let me know. In today's episode, we'll be considering the idea of doctrine over person. As with the previous episodes on evangelicalism, I'll be using Robert J. Lifton's taxonomy. Here's what he says about doctrine over person. Rather than modify the myth in accordance with experience, the will to orthodoxy requires instead that men be modified in order to reaffirm the myth. That is definitely my own experience of evangelicalism. My question to you Does that in any way describe your experience in evangelicalism, or perhaps some other form of Christian religion? In effect, Lifton is saying that instead of recognizing individual persons as different from one another, the cult requires that everyone conform to its vision of the good or the true. If that doesn't describe your experience, I'd like to hear about that too please send those comments or questions to onbecoming at gmail.com. My thanks to those of you who've contacted me. Your contribution is greatly appreciated. Additionally, if you've been enjoying the podcast so far and want to help us grow, please consider recommending us to your friends, reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or donating to our Patreon, which includes access to exclusive members-only content. For this episode, I will be talking about something that may be entirely new to you, the Institute in Basic Youth Conflicts, which became the Institute in Basic Life Principles, IBLP, but that's just a name change. It was started and run by someone named Bill Gothard, again, probably a name you've never heard of. I first attended this institute at Wheaton College when I was in the eighth grade, That's a long time ago, so I don't exactly remember the number of days we met. I think it was something like three or four evening sessions with a Saturday session, but again, I'm not sure. Everyone was given a big red notebook, and then as the seminar progressed, you'd receive the next pages of the outline of the seminar, all with holes to fit into the three-ring binder. It felt a bit like going to Sunday school as a kid. Gothard is a graduate of Wheaton, earning his B.A. in Bible and M.A. in Christian education. It's not uncommon in evangelical circles for people to think of a degree in Christian education as a bit of a joke, and I think Gothard fits that stereotype to some degree. However, my father was a professor of Christian education, and he was known for breaking that stereotype. He worked in philosophy of education, and it turned out that Harper and Rowe contacted him due to his reputation to produce the definitive evangelical text on Christian education. I should probably say up front that attending this seminar was not my idea. It was my parents' idea. My mother and I attended together. As I've been working on this episode, I've been asking myself why my parents were so keen on me attending the seminar. The seminar was designed to deal with basic youth conflicts, and perhaps I was perceived as having conflicts. To be honest, I was not the most compliant child. More on that in the next episode. When we moved to Dallas, Texas, I was invited by my parents to attend it again. Now, it was a sort of an invitation that is basically a command. It came in the form of, wouldn't you like to go to the seminar? But it was clear that I couldn't really say no. By the way, the further we go in this episode, the more it will become evident why I think it's best interpreted as a command. You might be interested to know that the Duggar family, the family on which the TV show 19 Kids and Counting was based, were avid enthusiasts for Bill Gothard and his teachings. They were regular speakers at the Gothard family conferences in Big Sandy, Texas, and they credited Gothard's teachings with having changed our lives, I'm quoting from them, Alas, as I look back, I realize that my life was changed by those teachings, too. I'll have more to say about that in the next episode. Before we can talk about Gothard, it's helpful to understand a figure who greatly influenced him, Russas John Rushduni, who became prominent in evangelical circles in the 1960s and 70s. For my account of both Rushduni and Gothard, I'm partially indebted to the account provided by Kristen Kobes Dumas, In her superb book titled Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. The one thing I should add is that I think the term white evangelicals is redundant. African Americans don't identify as evangelicals, even if they may have some similar theological beliefs. Of course, this title may have come from an editor at Hopper. Rashtuni is known to many, okay, at least to those of us who've studied recent church history, as the founder of what is usually called Christian Reconstructionism, which is a form of fundamentalism, though Calvinistic in origin and nature. He saw contemporary society as a mess and believed that it could only be fixed by making Old Testament law the basis for society. For him and his followers, that meant instituting the death penalty for such things as idolatry, homosexuality, adultery, witchcraft, blasphemy, and lying about one's virginity. Ever use the Lord's name in vain? In a Rushdoony world, that could get you killed. Of course, it's important to add a caveat. Carrying out the death penalty would not be the government's job, but that of the church, which would have absolute power over such things. If that doesn't scare you, then you probably aren't scared by much of anything. Rashtuni believed that the government should have no authority over the church. Instead, the government needed to be scaled back and keep to its own lane. If anything, it would be the church having power over society and the government. Given these views, Rashtuni viewed public schools as taking over the authority of parents, which is why he promoted Christian schools, or even better, homeschooling. One thing that's under debate is just whose version of Christianity would have been the authoritative one, or could be, if this were to happen. Some scholars have argued that Rush Duny's vision would have made only Calvinism the accepted form of Christianity, but we haven't gotten that far yet. But there's an equally important, or perhaps even more important, set of beliefs that he held. Rashtuni rejected the Enlightenment idea that human beings are equal, and thus also rejected the notion of democracy, since he believed that human beings are fundamentally unequal. Democracy implies that people can rule themselves, and Rashtuni didn't believe that was desirable. To give you a specific example, he was against women having the right to speak in public or to vote, but it gets even crazier. He insisted that the American Civil War was not about slavery. Instead, it was about the southern states defending Christian civilization. According to him, what was called slavery in those states had been voluntary, and it had been a good thing for those slaves. It probably comes as no surprise that he believed women and African Americans should not be educated. But otherwise, Rush Dooney believed that God instituted a chain of command in which white men were the ones who had been given authority by God. As much as you might think, oh, this is kind of extreme, it's worth mentioning that such figures as Jerry Falwell Sr., Tim LaHaye, the left-behind book author, Pat Robertson, and Francis Schaeffer have explicitly or implicitly endorsed views connected to those of Rush Dooney. And if you are following current discussions, the ideal of making the United States into a theocracy is gaining serious traction among evangelicals. If you go to the website BillGothard.com, you'll see there is a discussion of how Gothard's seminar, at least according to him, freed two cult members. As we progress, you may start to wonder if Gothard is himself leading a cult, or was leading a cult. More on that later. Gothard believes that in the family, the father has absolute authority over the wife and children. Wives should not be allowed to make any decisions without the express approval of their husbands. Although Gothard spoke of the husband as offering servant leadership, he also says, and here I'm quoting, the woman responds with reverent submission and assistance. Just one little point. Gothard himself never married, so this is definitely a view from someone looking in from the outside. My own experience of how things really operate in evangelical families is they don't necessarily follow this model in practice, though they might be following it in theory. If you're wondering what I mean, consider how most evangelicals operate in regard to abortion. They say they're firmly against it, but when one of their daughters gets pregnant, well, they find a way to make an exception for themselves. So evangelicals are sometimes fine with preaching one thing and practicing something else. In any case, according to Gothard, children have no right to make their own decisions. They need to do whatever their father says. Perhaps you now understand why I suggested that my attendance at these seminars was not exactly a free action on my part. I'm still uncertain as to how much my parents accepted these teachings, I don't remember them voicing any explicit repudiation of them, but perhaps I'm not remembering correctly. However, the fact that I was basically forced to attend these seminars twice gives you good reason to believe that I was being taught what my parents believed. Cothard got a start by founding something called Campus Teams, which was designed to help wayward youth From that early start, he came to believe that there is a fundamental hierarchy that's been ordained by God. From an early version of his website, one could read the following. Just as there are laws of nature that govern the universe, so there are principles of life that govern our relationships. He gives the example of the law of gravity and then says, there are similar conflicts in relationships when principles of life are violated. Therefore, it is important for us to identify and explain the universal and non-optional biblical principles of life that are the basis for personal disciplines. I don't know about you, but the law of gravity seems something different from laws regarding human behavior. Gothard asserts that, again I'm quoting, everyone is under God-ordained authorities, such as parents, government, and the church. The purpose of God-ordained authority is to provide protection, direction, instruction, and provision. In case you're wondering how all this works, think of the military. There is an explicit chain of command. For Gothard, it is exactly the same in business. Your employer has absolute authority over you. Further, female employees need to submit to the rule of male employees. It's the same in government, which has the power to tell you what you can and cannot do, and Gothard would not sanction a woman being involved in politics. In terms of the church, there is Jesus at the top, then the pastor or elders of the church, sort of depends on how your church functions, and then husbands. In effect, then, God has set things up in this way so that you owe absolute obedience to the authorities in your life. Given how Gothard was influenced by Rushduni, it should come as no surprise that men are those who are properly in charge. Moreover, men who fail to exercise their absolute authority are not truly masculine. They have allowed women to take over their power, and they need to take it back. According to Rush Dooney, feminists need to be humbled so that they would, and here's a quote, seek the protection and safety of a man. Just as an aside, it's interesting that Gothard gives the example of the rich young ruler who was instructed by Jesus to sell all of his possessions, as an example of something specific to him, completely overlooking the fact that Jesus says twice that no one can follow him without giving up all of their possessions. It's just one more way in which evangelicals pick and choose what parts of the Bible they want to take seriously. I'm not suggesting that other Christians don't do this. They do, but they're usually a bit more upfront about it. Gothard laid all of this out in terms of principles, the principle of design, how God has set up the world, the principle of authority, which we've just been considering. It's not hard to see why he advocates the principle of forgiveness. We shouldn't be bitter when we are offended by others, nor, I suspect, when we are abused by those in authority over us. We also have the principle of freedom, Now, you may already understand that when evangelicals start talking about freedom, they really mean submission to authority. It's no accident that Jerry Falwell Sr. called his university Liberty University. Now, consider the first two sentences under the rubric of the principle of freedom. Gothard writes, A young person who loses his or her virtue is robbed of a power that God uses to produce spiritual initiative creativity, wisdom, and understanding. For this reason, there are warnings throughout Scripture for young people to flee useful lusts and to keep themselves pure for the Lord and for the one they marry. It's so interesting that when freedom gets invoked by evangelicals, it always means restriction. You probably were also wondering, so when was all this going to get to sex? And, And now you have the answer. It's the very first thing under the principle of freedom. What this meant practically for Gothard was that rather than dating, young people should practice courtship that would be controlled by, well, you can probably guess, the dad. Women were advised to avoid wearing anything that might provoke lusts in men, which is why dresses and skirts were to cover the ankle and hemlines were not to go below the collarbone. They were also discouraged from going to college and instead encouraged to find themselves in running the home. Well, actually, they weren't expected to run it themselves. They were supposed to follow the dictates of their husbands. For those children who did not submit to their fathers, Gothard's organization offered to take care of them until they became properly behaved. This was not just an empty offer. There were many children who were housed in IBLP compounds. Oh, I mean buildings. The first hint of something being amiss was the discovery that Gothard's brother who served as vice president of the ministry, had been in affairs with seven of the secretaries. That was in 1980. You might think, well, you know, that's that's his brother, not him. However, upon further investigation, it became clear that Bill Gothard had known about these affairs, even though he had silenced those who wanted to speak up. Four years before the scandal became public, Gothard, as in Bill, not his brother, had instituted a new policy, which he claimed was based on Matthew 18. Now, I'm not exactly sure what it is in this chapter that inspired gawther to claim that, henceforth, the staff would not, and now I'm quoting, give an evil report, but only say good things about other people. A very convenient teaching for someone who wanted absolute obedience, but a very dangerous teaching for those who are under those who are thought to have absolute authority. In 2016, an article appeared in Chicago Magazine about what was going on at the headquarters in Hinsdale, Illinois, a very tony suburb west of Chicago. The author, Brian Smith, quotes a resident of Hinsdale, who said, Everyone kind of thought it was very strange. Like, what did they really do there? They always seemed very secretive. According to Smith, and I'm quoting, Eighteen former staffers, interns, and volunteers have joined in a lawsuit accusing him, Bill, not the brother, of sexually, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and or psychologically abusing them. Gothard resigned from the IBLP board when he was accused of having sexually harassed and molested women working for the organization. The organization said that it had no comment on the matter. But in 2015, the news came out that Josh Duggar, a member of the Duggar family of TV fame, had molested five girls, four of them being his sisters. What did the Duggar family do about this? They sent him to an IBLP facility in Little Rock, Arkansas. Smith describes IBLP as a group that pushes an authoritarian patriarchal theology conceived, developed, and thundered from the pulpit by Gothard over the years. I share that because it's a view from outside the Gothard world. More recently, in 2021, Josh Duggar was convicted of downloading and possessing child sex abuse images. I mentioned Beth Barr before, and her assessment of the matter was that the fundamentalist patriarchal teachings create an atmosphere in which such things can happen. She says, as a man, they have more authority than women. Their voice counts more. And women have this propensity to be valued more for their sexual role, so it allows abuse to flourish. The response of IBLP was, there is no teaching by LP that women are inferior to men, because there is no such teaching in the Bible. From a biblical perspective, all people are equal in value before God, despite the fact that we are all different with varying gifts and talents, and may have different complementary roles. But that statement sounds like it's very much at odds with what Gothard taught for many years. When evangelicals start to talk about complementary roles, that's code for women need to submit to men. Well, Gothard doesn't want to say that women are inferior. It's hard to avoid that conclusion when men are the ones who rule and women are the ones who submit to that rule. I haven't mentioned it yet, but my own experience of these seminars was that they were almost cultish in nature. I can't remember if I thought that the first time I took the seminar. I definitely thought it by the second time. But the problem was, what could I do about that? What was I allowed to say? My parents had sent me to the seminar, and who was I to say anything? The whole point of the seminar was that the father was in charge and the role of the son was to dutifully obey, rather than to question or disagree. Someone asked me if I still had that red notebook. I don't. And I can't remember if it just simply got discarded along the way. I've moved so many times since then that I've lost track. Or whether it just was thrown away because I thought it seemed so wrong. The Chicago Magazine story makes reference to someone named Micah J. Murray, who was identified as someone who worked for the organization and posted this on his website. We talked about how it was a cult, joking at first. But as I spiraled closer and closer to the center, the realization began to sink in. The jokes became real. Earlier I mentioned that Gothard claims on his website that two people were freed from a cult because of his teaching, but I wonder if it's more accurate to say that they went from one cult to another. I've had so many students who grew up in some kind of fundamentalism. They decide to give it up, But then many end up choosing another form of fundamentalism. On his website, BillGothard.com, he has a section titled, Why So Many Teens Join a Cult. Now, I'm not really sure as to how many teens there are that actually join a cult, but here's what Gothard has to say. The first problem is that cults thrive on a passive mind. You might say, what exactly is the active mind that Gothard is trying to inculcate? Isn't his commandment to obey authorities without question about cultivating a passive mind? I guess you could inwardly disagree, but that is most likely to create the kind of bitterness that Gothard warns you against. He also writes, and I'm not making this up, secular education trains students to have a passive mind. Why he thinks that is totally unclear to me, but I think it's exactly the opposite. Homeschooling is much more likely to create a passive mind, especially given some of the rather scary stuff that's on the market to use as curriculum for homeschooling. Among that, of course, is curricula authored by Gothard. Then he claims that cults appeal to the lusts of the flesh. He doesn't name any cults fitting this description, but the kinds of cults I've heard about don't fit this description at all. Most cults are about the rejection of such things. He next claims that cults activate the fear of rejection. But isn't that a fitting description of his own teachings? These women who were harassed and abused, weren't they fearful of being rejected by him if they spoke up? As I said, I can understand that fear. Next he claims that cults instill lies in the gut brain of followers, He goes on to explain this by saying, ideas that are taught to our head brain can be changed with new information, but ideas that are firmly rooted in our gut brain will not be changed regardless of the wisdom and logic of new information. One of the points of this podcast has been to explore precisely those thoughts that are part of our intuitive minds, which I think is a better term than gut brain. What I've tried to argue is that these kinds of things that our intuitive minds embrace are, in fact, difficult to dislodge by the part of our brains that use logic. Gothard says that it is useless to argue with cult members because they are firmly committed to their false philosophies and are willing to die for them. But that sounds like the followers of Gothard. He may believe that his beliefs are the true ones, but I suspect that that's what many cult leaders believe. Finally, he claims that Cults use guilt to deaden the conscience of their followers. Huh? Wouldn't guilt awaken your conscience? His solution, the only way to freedom, is for a cult member to get daily remas from reading the Bible, memorize them, and quote them to God every night before going to sleep. During the night, they will go down to his gut brain and cleanse it from false teachings. Yeah, I didn't know what the word "remas" was either. It appears to be Gothard's own coinage. But there are Bible verses that, according to him, deal with specific situations. On his website, he says the following. Each day as you read the Bible, God will point out a special verse, a rima. Write it out and memorize it so you can quote it while going to sleep that night. Perhaps God will do that. Perhaps you'll just notice a verse that seems interesting or soothing or whatever. But perhaps you won't actually get a rima, and so you'll just be forced to find one. God, which one of these rimas is for me? So many good possibilities. In any case, it's very hard for me to imagine that memorizing Bible verses will keep people from joining cults. Indeed, that sounds like a formula for creating a cult, a cult in which Bible verses are carefully chosen to support a particular point of view, and other verses are equally avoided because they might cause you to question that point of view. The lawsuit that was filed against Gothard claimed that IBLP created a purity culture that had rules on marriage, women, children, medicine, and ways to take back and fix the nation. Now I'm quoting that from the Chicago Magazine article, and I want to quote this too. Its philosophy included everything from the general, what children should study from kindergarten through high school, to the granular, exactly how young men and women should dress, style their hair, and comport themselves to avoid attracting sinful attention. ATI's homeschooling curriculum consists of 54 wisdom booklets, which teach subjects including geography, math, science, law, and government, tying each lesson to Gothard's interpretation of a corresponding biblical passage. That sounds very cultish to me. Unfortunately, it also sounds much like the evangelicalism that I grew up with. You could deviate from the script, but there's really only so much wiggle room. A good friend of mine who attends a decidedly evangelical church constantly tries to inject some other ideas into the conversation. I've never talked to anyone from her church about her, but I expect she would be considered on the fringe of things. Just teaching philosophy at an evangelical school put me on the fringe, and I discovered that I needed to be circumspect about what I said, especially when it became clear that any deviation would be reported by students to the authorities. One day I quoted a colleague who was a highly respected church historian. I had asked him just casually, so what's going on with you? And he replied, you know, history, it's just one damn thing after the next. I thought that was an apt way of describing things. Pandemic, inflation, bank failures, etc. Some people may see some of these things coming before they arrive, but most of us couldn't have foreseen the pandemic. I mentioned that he had said this in one of my classes, and I was soon summoned to the dean's office and told that a mother had just called to complain that I had used the word damn in class. I've been quoting from the Chicago Magazine article because it gives a view from the outside what people inside a culture might see as normal. It mentions a series of things that seem bizarre, the belief that cabbage patch kids are idolatrous, that rock music, actually any form of syncopated music, is, according to Gothard, and here I'm quoting, the antithesis of what God desires in the life of a Christian. Even Christian contemporary music falls under this prohibition. That godly people do not wear blue jeans, that men who are circumcised are purer than those who are not, that not giving the Lord his due may lead to miscarriage, that winks from women are a kind of whoredom. Yes, that's his term. That television and movies should be forbidden. I only mention that last one because it seems so odd that the Duggar family was on TV, but the guy who had so deeply influenced them was against them watching television. Well, perhaps they didn't watch the show. You might wonder why I've spent so much time talking about Gothard. After all, probably most of you listening have never heard of him. But he proved to be a highly important figure for driving the homeschooling movement and providing the curriculum for those homeschooled kids. Unlike Rushtuni, Gothard didn't describe himself as a Reconstructionist or Christian theocrat. But that lack of identification probably made it easier for conservative parents and their children to swallow the toxic brew he was creating. I suspect that many evangelical parents back in the 1980s and 90s would have found the actual vision of someone like Rashtuni to be kind of scary. Many people would still consider it to be too extreme, and we can be thankful for that. But one can take Rashtuni's vision and water it down so much that it starts to make people think differently. Cults generally operate by providing one sort of image to the outside world, and then as you become a member, you're slowly inculcated with the beliefs that are at its core. For instance, Scientology only reveals its ultimate secrets when you've given a few hundred thousand dollars. Although Gothard didn't get involved in politics, he influenced many who did. Dumez mentions Howard Phillips, who became a crusader for the view that the IRS was attacking Christian schools and an advocate with Gothard for homeschooling. What Dumes astutely notes is that While these views would have been seen by some in the evangelical world as extreme a few decades ago, they have now become much more mainstream in evangelicalism. In her book, the account of Gothard leads to an account of James Dobson, who became active in the evangelical world only a few years later. He established himself and his position in a book titled Dare to Discipline, came out in 1970. Dobson was convinced the 60s had been a terrible time for the family as well as the social order in general. It's helpful to realize that he positioned himself as the opposite of Dr. Benjamin Spock, who had advocated for a freer way of raising children that respected them as individuals. You can probably guess that Spock's view was that children were naturally good, or at least inclined toward goodness. Dobson, on the other hand, thought that children were naturally evil, and so, of course, they needed to be disciplined and controlled which also means they need to be spanked. Dobson had a view on this, too. Children should be spanked with a belt that's kept in a prominent place where the children could see it to be reminded of its force. Here's what Dobson says. Respect for leadership is the glue that holds social organizations together. Without it, there is chaos, violence, and insecurity for everyone. In 1973, the American Psychological Association took the position that homosexuality was now no longer considered a disorder that needed to be cured. Dobson resigned from the APA and then resigned three years later from his position at USC. Having grown up with a father who was largely absent because he was out winning souls, Dobson thought that such absence led to children becoming, among other things, homosexuals. Although Dobson didn't start out talking about gender roles, that soon became a preoccupation. He became convinced that one of the reasons why society was breaking down, or had already broken down, was that it had abandoned the idea of traditional gender roles, as evidenced by the rise of feminism and women working outside of the home. You'll remember that Gothard thought that men and women had different roles, a view that gave rise to what is now called complementarianism. Dobson claimed back in 1975 that, and I'm quoting, males and females differ biologically, anatomically, and emotionally. They are unique in every cell of their bodies. And this set up the basic distinction between men and women. Whereas men should be out hunting or fishing, women should be at home waiting for them. He claimed that men derive self-esteem by being respected. Women feel worthy when they are loved. I find this such a curious distinction. Do men not want to be loved? Do women not want to be respected? Dobson insists that without respecting these traditional differences, society faces a complete breakdown. A primary source for this decay was the rise of feminism. Specifically, he worried that men were losing their time-honored roles of protector and protective. It's not hard to hear echoes of Gothard in that statement. Dobson acknowledged that his view might come off as, and here I'm quoting him, macho, sexist, chauvinist, and stereotypical. But it turns out he was delighted to be called such names. One of the things that Dobson's organization published is something called A Checklist to Assess Your School's Risk for Encouraging Homosexuality, written by Linda Harvey. After establishing homosexuality as dangerous and risky due to HIV and sexually transmitted diseases. Okay, so she doesn't establish anything, she just asserts it. She then suggests that schools with things like gay-straight alliances are breeding grounds for homosexuality. Breeding is such a weird way to talk about homosexual sex. And the result is that students' lives and welfare are put at extreme risk. That's a quote. It's so interesting to me that Harvey doesn't mention that heterosexual behavior carries risk for sexually transmitted disease, too. That's probably because she asserts that homosexuality is unhealthy. It's also interesting that she promotes the view that homosexuals are predators. I hope you realize that this view has long been discredited by actual scientific studies. She quotes someone who is the president of Liberty Council, You see what I mean about these organizations that want to limit your freedom but keep talking about it as if it's something they desire? And then she says that the gay lobby is out to make the world accept them. Here I can't resist a line from the organist at one of the Episcopal churches that I attended. He said, people always talk about the gay lobby, but why haven't they invited me to one of their meetings? And here's an actual sentence from her checklist. The ultimate agenda is to dominate, not to have tolerance but to dominate, the worldview, and that worldview is homosexuality. Well, if only queer people could dominate the world, that would be something, but not something that's ever going to happen, nor is it something that any gay or lesbian or LGBTQ organization is advocating for. But it's even more bizarre to speak of homosexuality as a worldview. I don't think you could speak of heterosexuality as a worldview. It may be part of a worldview, but it's actually inconceivable that anyone's worldview could be boiled down neatly into either heterosexuality or homosexuality. We are sexual beings, but we're much more than just sexual beings. In other words, what she says simply doesn't make any sense. I was talking to someone who spoke of the homosexual lifestyle, and my quick response was, as long as you're willing to talk about the heterosexual lifestyle, then I'll allow for such terminology. I want to close with some statements made by Dobson when the Supreme Court of the United States made marriage between people of the same gender possible. Some of what he says is so deeply offensive that I should warn you in advance. Here's merely a portion of what he says with a few comments in response. I do not recall a time when the institutions of marriage and the family have faced such peril, or when the forces arrayed against them were more formidable or determined. Barring a miracle, the family that has existed since antiquity will likely crumble, presaging the fall of Western civilization itself. For more than 50 years, the homosexual activist movement has sought to implement a master plan, that has as its centerpiece the destruction or redesign of the family. Many of these objectives have largely been realized, including widespread support of the gay lifestyle, discrediting of scriptures that condemn homosexuality or sexual immorality, muzzling of the clergy and Christian media, inclusion of gays and lesbians in all branches of the military, granting of special privileges and rights in the law, overturning laws prohibiting pedophilia, indoctrining children, and future generations through public education and securing all the legal benefits of marriage for any two or more people who claim to have homosexual tendencies. I've already commented on the gay lifestyle idea. It just doesn't make any sense. As to scriptures that condemn homosexuality, it's clear from Dobson's own statements that his understanding of the Bible is rudimentary at best. One may not agree with those who read statements with more nuance than Dobson does, but their views are based on significant scholarship. When evangelicals claim that they've been muzzled, what are they talking about? Dobson and his ministries have been perfectly free to say what they wanted on thousands of radio stations. However, I think Dobson is really talking about the fact that they are no longer free to spew their hate without people criticizing them. It would be interesting to hear how Dobson believes that the LGBTQ community has now received privileges, I don't know what those could be, though I suspect that he means that they are now starting to be recognized as persons. We've already seen that the evangelical world privileges straight, white, male authority, so any challenge to the doctrine is going to be viewed as a threat. The charges of pedophilia continue to be made, even though they can now be seen as simply baseless charges. He goes on to say, Admittedly, there have been various societies in history where homosexuality has flourished, including the biblical cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in ancient Greece and the Roman Empire. None of these civilizations survived. Well, that's true, but none of the heterosexual civilizations have survived either, so it's kind of a wash. He then says the impact of experimenting with the meaning of marriage is no longer speculative. We can see where it leads by observing what has happened in Scandinavian countries. The consequences for families in those countries were devastating. The institution of marriage began dying, with most young couples cohabitating or choosing to remain single. Now, there are various different causal fallacies that you can read about in any book on logic. The fallacy here is that Dobson establishes zero connection between gay marriage and people not getting married. Perhaps there's a case to be made, but I've never seen it made, just hinted as if it were obvious. He goes on to say, How could such a great and freedom-loving people have allowed themselves to be dominated by a handful of unelected, unaccountable, arrogant, and often godless federal judges who've been appointed for life and continue to violate the democratic process? It is an ominous development. Now here's something on which Dobson and I can agree though I suspect he would have a very different view of those unelected, unaccountable, arrogant Supreme Court judges with the current court. What did Dobson predict would happen? I'm quoting again. Religious liberty will be assaulted from every side. You can be certain that conservative churches will be dragged into court by the hundreds. Their leaders will be required to hire people who don't share the beliefs of their denominations and constituents. Yeah, you probably have noticed that none of this has happened. Then he trots out the prediction that legal oppression is coming across the nation. Well, that hasn't happened either. Finally, he closes by saying that, and again I'm quoting, Christian colleges may be unable to teach scriptural views of marriage. Any non-profit Christian organization that opposes same-sex unions, including our own, will likely lose its tax-exempt status many will be forced to close their doors. None of that has happened either, though I'd be delighted if such Christian colleges, by which he means evangelical colleges, were to lose their tax-exam statuses for teaching hateful things. Dobson believes that he understands what the Bible teaches about marriage, but trust me, it's both complicated, and when you actually know what the Bible does teach about marriage, you'll probably be very uncomfortable. Yes, it's that bad. All of that may sound like the rantings of a crazy person. You might think, thank God that his views haven't prevailed, yet. But that was my world, the world in which I grew up, and the world in which I taught for over two decades. You'll have to wait until next week to hear about that. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and you've been listening to On Becoming.